Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Good Monday morning to you. It is January 18th, 2021, and it is the day that we honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King was a man who gave his life for justice and for racial equality. He paid the ultimate price as a sacrifice for his mission. That mission was to help America fulfill its founding creed that all men are created equal no matter their race. At the time, segregation, Jim Crow, codified racism, and cultural racism were so pervasive in American society that his mission had seemed impossible. Yet through his efforts and those of countless others who followed him, we saw tremendous progress in civil rights and ensuring access to equal opportunities for all. His noble words remind us that character is the metric we should use to judge wisely, not skin color. But even the legacy of Dr. King could be torn down by the woke mob in just a few years. FBI documents and transcripts unearthed by Dave Agaro, a Pulitzer Prize winning historian with a PhD from Duke, gives explicit detail on Dr. King's alleged affairs with more than 40 women, single and married. To quote the Wall Street Journal about Garo's work, in the ugliest scene, difficult to comprehend or forgive, King stands by and even laughs and offers advice as a fellow minister rapes a woman. King is drunk and he brags about it. Now we don't know the full details of what is on those FBI tapes and there's evidence that the FBI was specifically targeting Dr. King because they wanted to take him out. But the FBI's surveillance tapes and the transcripts of them remain under seal until 2027. However, what Garo found were some of these summaries and the related material that were included among intelligence documents covered by the President John F. K. Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992. So that's why we know what we know, because these documents were released in 2017 and 2018. So flash forward to 2027, if these allegations prove to be true, will the Me Too mob demand that Dr. King's statues be torn down? Will they seek to destroy the legacy of truth and justice that Dr. King achieved in his public fight, even if in his private life was, it was covered with secret sin? Where does the mob stop? They've tried to do the same thing to other great Americans like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who committed America's original sin, they held slaves, even while they liberated America from the clutches of the British crown. To quote Dr. King, our founding fathers created a promissory note that Dr. King himself helped to cash. Now here's the problem with America's woke mobs. They're utterly nihilistic at their core, be it an Antifa mob, a Capitol Hill violent mob, or a Me Too mob. Dr. King himself identified the problem with nihilistic mobs, which he saw among some black Americans during his own day. Here's the quote. He said, but revolution, the born of despair, cannot be sustained by despair. This is the ultimate contradiction of the black power movement. 
it claims to be the most revolutionary wing of the social revolution taking place in the United States. Yet it rejects the one thing that keeps the fire of revolutions burning, the ever-present flame of hope. When hope dies, a revolution degenerates into an undiscriminating catch-all for evanescent and futile gestures. The Negro cannot entrust his destiny to a philosophy nourished solely on despair, to a slogan that cannot be implemented into a program. So as we continue to, to contemplate Dr. King's legacy, which we'll know more about in a few years, here are some wise words from Lance Morrow. He's a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He wrote in the Wall Street Journal. He said, we are running out of paragons. I believe in great man theories of history, or believe in any case, that the absence of moral leaders, such as King, is a catastrophe. A country without heroes becomes either savage or monstrously petty and dull and mean. What we have today is a toxic compound of savagery and pettiness made even worse by the ruthless self-importance of identity politics. We have grown profligate in destroying heroes. I don't think we can afford to lose Dr. King. The way out, I'd say, is grace. If anyone believes in grace anymore, it's become a rare thing in American public life. Martin Luther King was complicated, and some of his behavior was vile. Yet he gave his life, gave it knowingly, for the sake of the country, for blacks and also for whites. He deserves the grace of his country's forbearance. Now, as I mentioned before, so many of our founding fathers are having their legacies taken under question right now. There's a big microscope on them. The 1619 Project wants to dismantle this country's founding. They want to say that our founding fathers uh, were hopelessly racist and that the entire American experiment, that all of our founding documents were hopelessly flawed and that the whole system want, should be destroyed. This is what they want. The 1619 Project, the reason it's called this is because they say that America's true founding was 1619, not 1776. What was 1619? This was the year, reportedly, that the first slave boat arrived on the shores of South Carolina. Now, their attempts to rewrite history in order to fit their wokeness is ahistorical, and it's so utterly devoid of facts. We know here, from what we've seen from Dr. King, the facts around his legacy are complicated. But this does not mean that what Dr. King achieved for racial equality in this country should be torn down either. And the same applies to our founding fathers. And for many of these patriots who support President Trump, some of them are very upset about what's happened. They see their legacy being destroyed by people who stormed this capital. Again, this question of grace, where do we draw the line? I want to, though, in light of what happened uh, at the, with the horrific mob on Capitol Hill, read uh, just what the expectation this week. We have a historic inauguration this week and the horror that we saw earlier this month, I want to end on a positive note from Dr. King himself. He said that when evil men plot, good men must plan. When evil men burn and bomb, good men must build and bind. When evil men shout ugly words of hatred, good men must commit themselves to the glories of love. Now, no matter what your, what your political stripe is, if you're coming from the left, if you're coming from the right, as Dr. King said, a commitment to nonviolence, commitment to the glories of love, as his word said. That's how this country moves forward. 
Now we've got the National Guard here in our national in our nation's capital. Uh, we are all hoping and praying for a, a safe transition of power. We're going to get more into that in the show. Stay tuned with us. We'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey there, welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. So Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is the first in her family to go to college. She got into Harvard. She worked really hard, got in. And now Harvard is kicking her off of an advisory board because she challenged the electoral results. Take a look. Walk us through the blowback. So Harvard, they shove you off of their advisory board for the Institute of Politics. I'm a Harvard Kennedy School grad. I was disappointed to hear this myself personally. What's been the fallback since then? Well, first of all, I was notified by the dean of the Kennedy School that uh, they asked me to resign from the board of the Institute of Politics. And this is an organization I've been involved with since I was a freshman uh, at Harvard College. And it's a bipartisan organization, and uh, it's meant to inspire students to seek uh, lives focused on public service and public policy. Uh, it's always been bipartisan. It has shifted, like many college campuses across the country, it has shifted further and further to the left over the years. I was, I was asked to resign twice because of my decision to object to certain contested electors and because of my floor speech. And I said I was not going to resign. So they made the decision to remove me. And now the board is made up entirely of Joe Biden voters. So I was the only remaining Trump voter on the board. Uh, and now it is 100% Joe Biden voters. And the reason why I think this is unfortunate is not necessarily for me, although I deeply uh, you know, think the IOP has an important mission, but it's about the students. The student body at Harvard should be exposed to different viewpoints, diff different political perspectives, different ideological perspectives, rather than a monoculture on campus, which does not help develop critical thinking, and it also doesn't help develop leadership. And it, it's funny because I don't remember Harvard ever being upset when the Democrats did the same thing by challenging the electors very recently, 2001, 2005, and 2017, when it was a Republican, why was it this time that they made this move? Why, why, why was it this time that they wanted to signal in this direction? Well, it's a great question, Carrie. I actually went back to look at the board members when I was a student. And in 2005, one of the senior advisory committee board members, who was a Democrat, Jesse Jackson Jr., uh, objected to the Electoral College votes of the state of Ohio. He voted uh, to object. He did not certify. He also spoke on the House floor. He, of course, was able to stay on the board of the Institute of Politics. And I think it's important, and the media has not necessarily reported the facts, so I'm grateful for you for doing this. Every Republican president in my lifetime, Democrat members of Congress, have objected to the electors, and they've had these discussions on the House floor related to electors election integrity, election security. And these are some pretty big names, people like John Lewis, Elijah Cummings, Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi even spoke on the House floor in 2005 during the debate on the Electoral College and saying that this was not about overturning the election, it was about strengthening our election system. So uh, again, they're not applying the same standards to either parties, which is unfortunate. And frankly, it's unfair. Now the university is considering going a step further 
uh, and there's a petition to revoke earned degrees. So these are not even honorary degrees. These are actually earned degrees, whether it's a JD, MBA, BA in my case, of anyone who is an enabler is how they define it, of the Republican president. And that is really, really dangerous. Wow. Are, are they going to give you tuition refund? <laughs> That's a very good question. You know, I worked hard. Somehow I think it only flows one way. <laughs> I worked hard to earn my degree, and I know that many of my uh, fellow Republicans who are working in public policy, some of them are also in elected office, that's a very, very dangerous place and position for Harvard to take. Again, this is a petition, but it's that's how my, their decision to remove me from the board started, was a petition by hundreds, not even thousands, just hundreds of far-left alumni, students, and faculty signed on to it. And this is something that we're not just seeing at Harvard. We're seeing on college campuses across the country. One of my colleagues from Oklahoma, Tom Cole, who is one of the most well-respected members of Congress in either party, uh, he was just forced to give back his honorary degree from Grinnell College, a small liberal arts school. Uh, so this is something that we as Americans need to stand up against this cancel culture. Well, it's interesting. I was recently speaking with someone, she's an alumni of C Cornell University, and she said she refuses to donate because she's conservative, she's a Republican. She doesn't want to enable and financially support this behavior, this cancel culture that you're talking about. Do you think that makes sense? Do you think Harvard alumni who are upset about how you've been treated should maybe consider stop giving donations to their alma mater? They already are. I've heard from numerous Harvard alumni who will no longer be donating to support Harvard. Um, I am grateful that they are taking a stand. And their concern is if this happens to you, um, it could happen to any conservative, any Republican, and frankly, any alumni. Uh, so I do think people withholding their funds is going to send a message to these higher ed institutions across the country. From my perspective, it's also important to talk about the federal funds. Harvard, in particular, relies on hundreds of millions of dollars of federal funds. We need to make sure these college campuses respect the constitutional liberties, the freedom of thought, on their campuses rather than uh, really discriminating against those who have a conservative perspective. And what about the accountability here in terms of the, uh, you know, the partisan makeup of universities? It does seem like since COVID that college enrollment has been going down, that people seem to say, hey, maybe these degrees aren't as useful. Maybe, maybe I could just go straight into the workforce or maybe I can get education on my own through alternative means. Do you think the COVID situation has disrupted the education marketplace to say, you know, maybe we're not doing things right. Maybe we need to be teaching people in different ways. Absolutely, and I see this in my district. We have very good paying jobs and careers that you don't necessarily need a cookie cutter four year degree from a liberal arts institution. Uh, community colleges are important, but so is vocational uh, education programs and skills education programs. Uh, workforce development programs that are starting in middle school and high school are some of the most popular programs among students in my district. So I do think this is an opportunity to think outside of the box. I also think some of the students, uh, particularly this year, the incoming freshmen who have had only online learning, even at institutions like Harvard, that has been extremely challenging to get the academic experience and the typical undergraduate experience. So I do think there's real room for a broader perspective on what education looks like uh, that is connected to economic opportunity in this country. 
Uh, Congresswoman, I want to turn to the topic of impeachment and the inauguration. I know you've been very vocal about this issue of the impeachment. You called it something that was a snap impeachment. You said that you opposed the impeachment. You're not alone within the Republican Party. Over 95 percent in that neighborhood of the Republicans voted against the impeachment. Why do you think this impeachment happened? Well, I think Democrats have been trying to impeach the president since President Trump was elected in 2016. This is the second time we've gone through the impeachment partisan process put forth by Nancy Pelosi and, and mainly Adam Schiff. Uh, in this case, I think they just couldn't help themselves. I think it really is to the detriment of the American people. We are we were one week away from the swearing in of President-elect Joe Biden, and at a time when the country should be unifying. Democrats doubled down in a very partisan way, driving through this snap impeachment. What's important and really, um, you know, an aberration about this impeachment is it didn't even go through the committee process. There was no opportunity to actually review evidence. There was no opportunity for the president's counsel to participate. There were no witnesses. It was just an immediate impeachment blaming the president for the violent uh, perpetrators and criminals who caused loss of life and criminal destruction in the United States. Capital, which of course should be condemned. Um, however, uh, this just was unhelpful in terms of unifying the country. All right, we'll be back with more. My part two with Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Stay tuned here on Just the News AM. We'll be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hey, welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. Well, here's more with my interview with Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Her thoughts on impeachment. There was an advisor actually who said that impeachment could be good because it could allow the president to present new evidence. Take a look to see what she had to say about that. On this question of impeachment, the uh, I, I spoke to a Trump advisor last week and he said that he actually thinks that going to trial could be a good thing for the president because it could, because it could give him a chance to talk about the evidence and really focus on the original uh, purpose for why you were objecting in the first place, Congresswoman, the issue of election integrity, the questions around whether there was you know changes in the rules that were unconstitutional, that it could actually re refocus attention on this issue at hand. Do you agree with that? I think that impeachment proceedings, the two that I have been in Congress, so the impeachment proceedings that went through the House Intelligence Committee, as well as this SNAP impeachment, I think there's a lot of issues that we need to be focused on for the American people, and partisan impeachments aren't ways to focus on those issues. They are a distraction. We are in very economically challenged times. We are in the COVID pandemic focused on vaccine distribution, small businesses are suffering. Those are the issues I want to see Congress focus on. And I think there's a real opportunity for Republicans to lead in that area. When it comes to election security and election integrity, I believe that we have an opportunity as Republicans to put forth best practices from states that have very well-run elections to try to reform and encourage fixes in states that 
really had issues. I mean, you had issues in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, Georgia, uh, with people fundamentally lacking faith in safe and secure elections. And I think we should legislatively focus on that, have a bipartisan commission uh, that actually makes recommendations of changes that need to be made. But because the states are run at the or the elections are run at the state level, do you actually think any of these changes will happen? I mean, is there is there anything that Congress would do that Democrats would ever come on board and you guys are in the minority now uh, that would have any teeth at the federal level? Well, I think putting forth that bipartisan commission is uh, one way we can try to lead other states and really look at the states that excel. If you look at the state of Florida after the 2000 presidential election, where Florida was really under the microscope with the hanging chads, this was, of course, uh, the Bush-Gore election that was so, so close in that state. Florida did a tremendous job uh, making specific changes uh, very quickly to make sure that they had much better run elections. And if we remember this year on election night, Florida, despite being one of the most populated states in the country, was one of the first states to have the accurate information. So I think the commission that Congress could support could look at those best best practices from the states that run very good bipartisan elections that have the faith of the people in their states and provide recommendations and guidance to states that clearly need to improve how their elections are conducted. Okay, but again, to the state level, I mean, Georgia is run by Republicans. Uh, that's part of why President Trump has been frustrated. Um, and yet it seems that Governor Kemp and, and people who work for him were really pressured by Democrats to make changes to the balloting process that, again, are raising lots of red flags. So do you think that Republicans are even motivated at this point? I, I hope Republicans are motivated. I, I hope the American people are motivated. We want to have faith in our election systems. And in the state of Georgia, what uh, the reason why I objected is you had a governor and a secretary of state unilaterally rewriting the election law and not following the state law that was passed and in law by the state legislature. That, from my perspective, is unconstitutional. The people that are required by the Constitution to write election law are the state legislatures, not unelected judges, not secretaries of state, not governors unilaterally. I believe that while the courts did not rule on these issues, I think in the coming election cycles, this is going to be tested in the courts. And I do think courts are going to rule that it is unconstitutional for a governor, a secretary of state, or a judge to unilaterally rewrite election laws rather than passing language and legislative um, proposals at the state level in the state house or state assembly. Well, we'll see if that comes to fruition. Last topic, the issue of the coronavirus in New York. You've been very vocal against the governor there, Governor Cuomo. But now it seems like the governor is actually walking things back. He says he wants to reopen. Do you take him at his word? Well, we've been complaining for a year of the importance of reopening. And small businesses have suffered in New York because of the governor's failed leadership. If you look at New York City alone, the number of restaurants that will not be reopening, it's heartbreaking and it's a staggeringly high number. Uh, in addition, he initially had a real one-size-fits-all across the state. And where I represent in very upstate New York, the North Country, we were not hit nearly as hard with positive COVID cases compared to other parts of the state. So it really took them hearing criticism from elected officials like me to have a much more regional approach. Um, I think the indoor restaurant ban is also uh, very detrimental to the economy um, throughout downstate New York. 
The other thing that is frustrating is this is a governor who has complained about the federal government every step of the way. However, it's important to note that the federal government has provided more support to New York State than any other state in the nation, whether it was building the Javits Center, whether it was the support of the ventilators, or whether it, it has been billions of dollars of aid that has, spent, that has been sent to New York State that the governor does not want to acknowledge. Um, even right now, the current crisis is the vaccine distribution. Many other states rank higher than New York State when it comes to getting the vaccines to the people who need them, the most vulnerable. And the governor needs to listen to the county public health officials rather than playing politics. Um, he, from my perspective, has been the worst governor in America over the course of the COVID pandemic. You talk to any New Yorker and they will share that frustration. Um, just don't talk to Hollywood since they were so focused on giving the governor an Emmy. Uh, come to New York. The New Yorkers understand that. He may have gotten the Emmy, but he still has been just a really, really frustrating governor in terms of how he has failed during this pandemic. I mean, it's just the people who lost loved ones to know that, uh, you know, their loss was feeding a man's ego to get an Emmy. It's 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 pretty incredible. But in terms of just bringing the country together, because this is something that you've talked about, what's the path forward to bring the country together? It's so polarized right now. I think that we need to make sure that we have a safe and secure inauguration of President-elect Biden. I think we need to come together as Americans to focus on the economic recovery. Uh, that does not mean another multi-trillion dollar liberal wish list. That means making sure small businesses, manufacturers, family farms uh, have the freedom to safely reopen. Uh, it also means that our kids have the freedom to learn in school safely. Uh, in addition, I think that there is a fundamental concern in this country as we've seen increases in crime, not just in New York State, but really in different parts of the country, uh, making sure that we're supporting our law enforcement uh, for safe and secure communities. And there's opportunities for bipartisanship in all of those uh, areas. I just hope that President-elect Biden looks to work with Republicans rather than just uh, really bowing to the far left, the AOC wing of the party, where I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to do that. Will you be going to the inauguration? I will be participating in the inauguration, uh, as will, I think, most of my colleagues from the New York delegation. Well, maybe Harvard should know that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they care at this point. Their board is 100% Joe Biden voters. <laughs> All right. Well, Congresswoman, we appreciate your time. Thanks, Carrie. And that's Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Republican. You can hear she is going to be attending the inauguration of Joe Biden, even though she voted against certifying or she challenged some of the results for Electoral College. See, it's possible to have bipartisanship, even when you have a strong opinion on the other side of the fence. Harvard, as a Harvard grad, please take notice. She wants to reach across the aisle. All right, we'll be right back. Got to take a quick break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey there, welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're with us. Joining me is Natalie Harp. She was a 2020 advisory board member for President Trump and she joins me now. Good morning, Natalie. Good morning. Good to be with you, Carrie. 
Good to have you. So you credit President Trump with saving your life under the right to try. Let our viewers know a bit more about right to try. And what do you what have you heard about Biden? Is he going to keep this in place? Well, I mean, it's incredible. I think we're all thinking about what the president has done in each of our lives over the last four years. And, you know, for some people, he saved jobs and the economy and created peace. But for me, he saved my life. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. And these are the stories of America. These are the stories of his presidency. I mean, right to try. Who are the first people with pre-existing conditions he protected? It was the terminally ill. That's something we've never seen before in the pro-life movement. He actually expanded that definition from, you know, uh, pro-life from conception, but to also natural death. People had given up on me and hadn't given me, you know, they were just like, here's opioids or the right to end your life, you know, through kind of doctor-assisted suicide. I'm in California. And the president passed right to try. And it was like, no, you can have the right to try experimental treatments if you want to. And that saved my life. He saved my life. And I think as we're all thinking about what he means to each of us, it's like we are the story of his presidency. We are the America he made strong, proud, and great again. And that legacy is not going away. It doesn't matter what, you know, Biden and the Democrats try to do. Of course, they're going to try to tear down the progress that the president has made. But they can't tear down what he's done in our lives. They can't take back the extra years in my life that he gave to me. And we're the story of his presidency. That story is going to continue living as long as we're here. And we're going to make sure that story keeps being told. And have you heard our Democrats wanting to repeal this right to try? Well, I mean, you see what they're doing already with what the president has done with the coronavirus by trying to get vaccines immediately to the people who need it the most. I mean, you look at New York, they're trying to give, give it to prisoners first and not even the elderly and letting the elderly die. So there is like a transition from protecting those, the terminally ill, the elderly people that really need care the most and being like, no, we're going to protect the most viable and not the most vulnerable. So I don't know if they're going to actually like outright, you know, repeal right to try. But I know that they're already with socialized medicine. You see it in New York. They've already started doing it in California where they're talking about in hospitals if people are terminally ill or the elderly and they have coronavirus to not give them the resources they need to spare them for other people. So there is going to be rationing of care People with pre-existing conditions, the terminally ill, they're going to be the ones that are going to suffer the most from that. But we're fighters. We're used to fighting for our lives. We've had four years of the president fighting for us. We know what it feels like to be fought for. So we're going to keep on fighting. And um, I think all across the country, our whole nation is now a nation of fighters and believers and wanting to fight for those who aren't able to fight for themselves. So that's definitely not going to go anywhere. They may try, you know, to you know, to destroy the pro-life movement that the president has created for, you know, the unborn and as well as those at the end of life. But we're going to fill the gap and we're going to keep fighting. Well, I had a priest on last week and he said that he thinks that the future of the pro-life movement and the struggles are going to be happening more at the state level uh, because that's yeah. where a lot of the action is going to be happening. I do think probably on, on the prisoner issue, the issue there with giving them the vaccine is because they're in close quarters there and so that the spread is, is really rapid. But I want to turn to a different topic and that's the issue of Joe Biden and his plan for the first 100 days. So he's rolled out his plan, his policy package for the first uh, 10 days, in fact. Uh, the He wants to do executive 
executive orders. He wants to rejoin the Paris Climate Change Agreement. He wants to extend a freeze on federal student loan payments. He wants to overturn a ban on travel from some countries that are Muslim majority. But again, lots of misreporting about what his uh, intention was there. And then he also wants a new mask mandate. You're out there in California. The, the lockdowns and the mandates have been pervasive there, and yet you guys have seen an enormous spike in cases. So what, what is Biden doing here? I mean, you've seen it there in California. What do you think the outcome is going to be? It's devastating. I mean, when you look at the California small businesses that have closed, I mean, the restaurant industry, it's devastated. It's the reason why so many people are moving out of California to Texas, to Florida, trying to get out of here and trying to get back the freedoms. Because as you said, I mean, we've locked down again over the holidays. The restaurants were closed and the cases keep going up. Lockdowns don't work. I mean, when they talk about a mask mandate, people are wearing masks. People are, you know, pretty much sheltering in place and the cases keep going up. People want their freedoms back. You're not going to have an economy anymore. You're not going to have anything anymore, any kind of life or freedom. And so Biden, of course, he's not listening to the science. He's just trying to posture and they aren't listening to the facts, talking to the people on the ground where it matters. People are hurting. People are struggling. People that never really cared about politics before in California, everybody kind of lives as they live and they really could care less about politics because we're we're do, we're actually living under what Biden wants to do. It's complete Democrat control. You have no voice. They control the governor. They control, you know, your state houses. That's what Biden wants to turn the country into. But that hasn't stopped Californians from still expressing our voice. And that's what the American people need to do, too, because this is our country that we're living in. We do have certain freedoms that are guaranteed to us by the Constitution. And we can't just sit down and shut up. We have to speak out because families are being destroyed. Businesses are being destroyed. These mom and pop businesses, they're not coming back. You're going to have Amazon and Facebook and Google buying up all of this space. And there's not going to be any room for the small businesses, which really are the backbone of this economy in which the president has focused on over the last four years and trying to build that back. So we have to keep speaking out. Don't give up. Just because, you know, Biden wants to undo and do all this doesn't mean we just need to sit back and be silent. We need to express our voice and share the stories that are happening on the ground, because we know from what the president has shown, there are more of us out there than there are of them. Nobody may be listening to us, but that doesn't mean we don't have a voice. All right, Natalie Harp, we're going to have to bring you back to talk more about the California recall of Newsom that's getting some momentum. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. And we'll be right back with Jason Steinauer. He's a historian to talk about the history of inaugurations in this country. Stay tuned. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey there, folks. Good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. We are broadcasting to you here from Washington, D.C. The entire city is frozen. It's on lockdown. There's tens of thousands of National Guard troops that are patrolling around. It's hard to even get in and commute. 
we're all excited. Uh, we will be excited when this is all done. But this is really an uh, unprecedented inauguration that everything is shut down, that the mayor has said, do not come to D.C. Usually inauguration is the time when people come, they spend money, they buy hotels. It's a boom to the city. But right now, because of the violence that we saw on Capitol Hill, that's not going to happen. And what does this mean historically? How, how does this inauguration compare to the past? Joining me to discuss this is Jason Steinauer. He's a public historian and he is working on a book about the history of the internet. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Nice to see you, Carrie. Thanks for having me. So put this in context. We have all these troops here, everything shut down. Have we seen anything like this before when it comes to inaugurations? Well, each inauguration is different and is a product of the time and circumstances uh, in which it happens. Uh, we obviously have had concern for president's safety before in history. Um, you know, in 1877, uh, Rutherford Hayes was actually inaugurated uh, in a private ceremony because people feared for his life after a contested election in 1876. And of course, we do have a history of political violence in this country with assassinations of presidents. And, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy was assassinated and then um, Lyndon Johnson was inaugurated in Texas right afterwards. So concern for president's safety does have a historical precedent. And obviously, we've never had an inauguration quite like this, but we've never been in a moment quite like this. So the contested election with Rutherford Hayes and he was sworn in in private. So there was no pomp and no circumstance at that time. So there was actually a public ceremony held a couple days later, uh, but there were concerns for his safety after that election, which was hotly contested and decided only a week before inauguration. So imagine going into January, February and March. In that time, inauguration was in March, not in January, and not knowing who the president would be. That was the case in 1876. So you're telling me that the swearing in would happen in months before the parade? So because the Constitution says January 20th. So it was typical to have the parade later in March? So the Constitution used to say March. So inauguration used to be on March 4th, and that was up until Roosevelt in about 1937, I believe. Uh, and then the Constitution was changed and it was pushed up to January. So yeah, the inauguration used to be in March, and that's when George Washington was inaugurated. It's when Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated. It's when Hayes was inaugurated, all the way up until uh, Roosevelt in the 1930s. That's really interesting. Why was it moved back? What was the debate about that? Uh, well, I mean, at the time in, in, when the Constitution was first written, it took a while to count votes, to tally everything, to get the president-elect up to Washington. Well, the, I guess Washington, when he was elected, came from Virginia all the way to New York City, because that's where the capital was at the time. Uh, but eventually, because of technology and because of changes in the country, it just got easier to do it in January. One thing, though, that to note is that it's always been in very cold weather. And the people who have been to inaugurations have lots of stories about being in the freezing cold weather. And, uh, you know, moving it up to January didn't help in that respect. And then, of course, there's a terrible story about William Harrison, who delivered his inaugural address outside in the cold, uh, got sick, and then died of pneumonia a month later. So one thing to consider, of course, is if we could ever move inauguration to warmer months. <laughs> Wow. Or do it from a tropical location, although I'm sure the lobbyists will love to feast upon that, uh, have a cushy retreat for the swamp creatures. Yeah, there was one inauguration that took place inside. I believe it was Reagan. Um, and that's because it was so cold outside. It was just impossible to do it inside. There have been other inaugurations that have taken place inside. As I said, um, you know, Hayes was done inside because of security. But I believe in the in one of the inaugurations for Reagan, I forget off the top of my head, it was so cold outside, I think it was like negative seven degrees, uh, that they actually did the inauguration inside the Capitol. 
So when we're talking about the fact that we had a president who got sick from his speech and died a month later, that's pretty a dangerous event if if uh, if history is, is the guide here. So uh, no doubt with the coronavirus, Joe, Joe Biden has been very public about wearing the mask and making sure that he wants to, there to be no COVID spread. But we do know that there was a member of the staff of Kamala Harris who had the coronavirus, so there were concerns there. What have we heard about the coronavirus and, and just the precautions there that they're taking? So, I mean, I'm not privy to the conversations around what's being done with COVID protocols in regards to the inauguration, but I will say, to be perfectly honest, as someone who's a, a resident here in Washington, D.C., I find a little bit of comfort in knowing that there won't be tens of thousands of people coming to D.C. during this time. We do have a deadly virus circulating. Um, the numbers are still going up across the country. And I think, as I said, each inauguration is different, and each inauguration is a product of its particular circumstances. Right now, we have a terrible pandemic that we have to get under control. And so if that means we have to scale back the inauguration and take more safety precautions, I think that makes a lot of sense. What about the parade? Because Joe Biden is canceling his parade. When did the parade start? And is it usually just a really happy affair? Yeah, there's been different iterations of the parade, and of course, it's also changed with the technology, right? So there used to be walking, and, and then there was cars, and uh, I, I forget exactly when the first automobile parade down Pennsylvania Avenue was. Uh, I think Jimmy Carter was the first one to actually walk down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue with his entire family from the Capitol to the White House. Again, these traditions, they are iterative, so depending on the time and the circumstances and the technology, they change. Um, this year, it probably makes sense not to have a lot of people crammed together, thousands and thousands at a time, breathing on each other, because we do have a deadly disease and deadly pandemic circulating. Um, and of course, the real issue here is we need to get to the task of dealing with some of the major issues that we have to deal with. So if the inauguration has to change slightly, the most important thing is we have a president in office who takes the reins and deals with the, nation, the issues facing the nation. Well, and at least we won't have any fights about crowd size. <laughs> All right, Jason Steinauer, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks, Gary. Really interesting nuggets he brought there. I didn't realize that they changed it from March up to January. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's freezing cold. We'll just be glad when it's done. All right, we'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. Well, I just saw this over the weekend, and many of my fellow Christian friends were really upset about it. Take a listen to this. It's one of the knuckleheads who broke into the Capitol, the violent insurrectionist who was part of a violent mob who disrupted democracy. Take a listen. Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. Amen. 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 Let's, all Let's all say a prayer. So you can hear they're invoking the name of Jesus Christ, and then they said a prayer as if to say that Jesus Christ blesses what they're doing. They said that they, they thanked God that they were there uh, to have the ability to send a message to the world, to say to the world, this is our country. I got to paraphrase something from Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden, a, a, a broken clock is right twice a day. Uh, you ain't Christian. 
I, I can't think of anything less Christian than breaking multiple of the Ten Commandments. For example, thou shalt not kill. Uh, this mob broke in and killed a police officer. There are multiple others who were wounded. How about this also? Thou shalt not steal. Uh, when you are breaking government property, this is property of the taxpayers. This is property that's not yours. You don't have the right to be there. How about thou shalt not covet? Uh, the, the election, yes, you have the right to, in court, legally challenge, you don't have the right to do this. Ronald Reagan said it right, though. He said, we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? That does it for us here on Just the News AM, though. Stay tuned. War Room is coming up next.